Merci. And welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And we are the principals of Groundworks, Inc. We design, install, and maintain gardens all around New York City. And on our show, We Dig Plants, we aim to bring the culture to horticulture. We are broadcasting from a cozy, repurposed shipping container in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. And there is, on top of this container, a garden that produces food for the restaurant. And this would be a great place to bring your Valentine. That's right. And today we're going to. That's right. (laughs) And tomorrow. um, Today's sponsor is Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, a muffin, a T bone steak, Uh, Your conscious food choices can change the planet because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. So let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. So tomorrow's Valentine's Day. I'm ready. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) The question is, are Paul and Robin ready? Yes. (laughs) Um, So before texting, sexting, stalking old lovers and boyfriends and girlfriends on Facebook, posting home videos of yourself for all to see on YouTube. (laughs) There were subtler and perhaps more evocative ways of communicating one's feelings for another, good or bad. There was the language of flowers. So Alice and I thought, in honor of St. Valentine's Day tomorrow, and it's, of course, big association with flowers given and received, In fact, for florists, it's the second busiest day of the year after Mother's Day. And also to help you all better understand the many different meanings that your floral bouquet or gift can express, we asked ourselves, how did certain flowers get their associations? Also so that we could be a little more creative instead of the ubiquitous dozen roses. Exactly. So we encourage you all to be a little more creative. Listen up. Listen up. We're going to give you some ideas of how to communicate your feelings um, in a floralistic manner. So how did the roses, how did red roses come to signify love and chrysanthemums become the favorite of funeral directors? Right. Well, the there is a story. There is a story, and Alice and I like to tell stories. So today's story, boys and girls, is the language of flowers, sometimes called floriography, and it reached sort of its pinnacle in the Victorian age. And in that relatively buttoned-up era, literally and figuratively, It was a means of communication in which various flowers and floral arrangements were used to send coded messages, allowing individuals to express feelings which otherwise could not be spoken. This language was most commonly communicated through something called tussie-mussies, which is like, uh, it sounds kinkier than it is, but it's just an arrangement of flowers with sort of an enclosed note. And the flowers communicated different things. And they were they were usually wrapped in linen, and they yeah. were very sweet and tiny little bouquets. Exactly. 
So, you know, the the, uh, the gentlemen and ladies could not text each other. So this is how they sent very, sometimes very um, evocative. evocative and deep and detailed messages with the flowers they chose. Now, of course, the Victorians didn't invent this floral language. Floral symbols have been used, you know, forever by the early Chinese, by the Greeks, the Romans, the Assyrians, Egyptians, and Indians. In fact, according to the Mystery and Magic of Trees and Flowers by the author Leslie Gordon, the first mention of English floral symbols was during the reign of Elizabeth I. An Englishman by the name of William Hunis wrote verses that included the phrases... Gilly flowers is for gentleness, and marigolds is for marriage, and cowslip is for counsel. But as I was saying earlier, it was really under the reign of Queen Victoria that flowers, and more specifically plants of all kinds, took on a whole new meaning when their scent, even on a handkerchief, conveyed a message. Now, you all can visualize that, you know, scenting, you know, you can see a Victorian lady scenting a, a handkerchief and, and dropping it, you know, right. scenting it with violet, you know, and fragrance. a note, you know, that had perfume exactly on it. So, you know, that was the time when when standards restricted conversation. You couldn't just walk up to someone um, and and speak with them. So, flowers dared to say what people couldn't, and were seen everywhere, not just in bouquets, but from men's lapels to stationery. And surprisingly, and interestingly, the meanings were not um, always positive. And, you know, the list, there was an insanely long list of definitions for every flower. And often each subtle nuance of the flower, these, these florographic dictionaries were published to sort of help people know how to, send, to navigate and how to yeah. send the message. One of the first and most used was Le, Lang- Le Language des Fleurs by Charlotte de la Tour. And it was the first to be published in 1818. During the reign of Queen Victoria, many more were published, including the truly comprehensive meaning of a hundred flowers in John Ingram's Flora Symbolica, signifying the utter importance of floral etiquette. After all, how embarrassing would it be if you gave the object of your desires a yellow carnation, signifying rejection, and expected some loving in return? <laughs> so uh, I wonder what it meant when Robin sent me blue carnations. I'm going to have those were those don't exist Died, in the natural right. world. Horrible. Um, so it was very important that a couple shared the same dictionary, as some editions sort of contradicted each other, like the daffodil, which could either mean unrequited love or the sun shines with you. Or more realistically, the difference between your cheek receiving a slap or receiving a kiss. Now, the Victorians who were, you know, uh, those few Victorians who were explicitly after some no-strings fun, as we we may now put it, would opt for dill, which means nothing more than pure lust. Now, that was very interesting to me because I think of it as a very tame herb as herbs come. But the Victorians consider that a symbol of lust. If you sent somebody some dill... And it wasn't your cook. And it wasn't just sprinkled <laughs> on your salad. <laughs> then uh, there was a message there. Um, the tongue-twisting chrysanthemum offers love if it's red and truth if it's white. And so the two colors can be mixed together for a sort of hybrid message of true love. If a person is sure of true love, of course, they could opt for something a little more risque and urgent with a spider flower, which is actually a request to elope. So if a man sent a woman a spider flower... You know, the message was pretty clear. They were going to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alice, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how, flowers can, how flowers can insult people? Yes. One of my favorite topics, because I, <laughs> I love the humble insult. Uh, despite being a symbol of beauty and emotion, flowers were also used by the Victorians to uh, talk about anger, 
towards each other and imply insults that were too racy to be articulated in any respectable society. So this is a very subtle way of getting your message across. A more reserved way of angering someone may be to show them indifference with candy tufts. Candy tufts. <laughs> but a more direct approach might be to... Um, articulate the use of garlic, which would not only make the uh, recipient stink, but it would also infer that there was an evil force or an illness that needed warding off. Wow, I wish I had known that, you know, when I was in high school, I could have sent out all kinds of messages. All those obnoxious <laughs> kids. Yes. Um, as, as mentioned before, some dictionaries uh, contradicted each other. And so the hydrangea could normally mean heartlessness or uh, frigidity, but it might be confused with gratitude for understanding or an apology. Certainly not the kind of message that would insult somebody in a feud. <laughs> right. Nothing could be clearer, though, than an orange lily, which is pure and simply hatred. Wow, that's an interesting choice for hatred. An orange lily, right. In certain cases, perhaps where somebody would want to deride an opponent's lack of luck with the opposite sex, the amaranthus flower, which represented desertion, would be a very damning comeback. But only in certain cases, a more general approach might be using nuts, which mean <laughs> stupidity. And continue to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to this day. That word is, is still in, in our language. Exactly. So uh, beyond the insults, um, you know, we, we talk a little bit more about the flower symbols. Um, you know, beyond their conventional meanings in the Victorian language of flowers, some plants were used as very specific symbols. In Chinese culture, for example, an azalea is the symbol of womanhood, while an orchid translates to many children. And there are many nationalities that have a plant to represent their country. A famous one that we'd like to share is the Tudor Rose, which was adopted by Henry VII in a bid to end the War of the Roses between the House of Lancaster and the House of York. What Henry did was he took a red rose of Lancaster and the white rose of York and mixed them together to create the English red and white rose, which has always been connected with that country ever since. Right. I wish our Civil War had done that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they'd use a rose. Yeah. <laughs> they could use cotton, right? So where did this language come from? Uh, the language of flowers is primarily a literary tradition. It's based on the language of flowers book in Victorian England, France, and America. Such books are part of the genre of sentimental or gift flower books, which has its roots in the literary almanac an annual publication that included a calendar. The language of flowers is based on a combination of folklore, literature, mythology, religion, and the physical characteristics of that plant. Sources of flower associations that have made their way into Victorian language of flower books include ancient symbolic associations from Chinese, Japanese, Middle Eastern, Greek, and Roman cultures, mythologies, and religions. Books such as Herbals, that recorded the virtues of plants as well as their myth and lore, literature, and most notably Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, if you look up, you know, flowers mentioned in Shakespeare. Oh, that you can write a dissertation on yeah, it. Yeah, and probably someone has. I'm sure. <laughs> the Turkish language of flowers and objects, known as silum, and the plants themselves often uh, are discouraging characteristics of the root, stem, leaf, bloom, or seed of the plant. 
as, as its source. So as we have said, one common misunderstanding about the language of flowers is that in the past there was one set of meanings which everyone knew. Although the inclination to associate flowers with sentiments or virtues is universal, there were many sets of meanings and significant cultural differences concerning the types of sentiments and flowers in the vocabulary. So it's the old tomato, tomato. Yeah, yeah, you have to be careful. Uh, The Victorians had to, you know, couples had to be sure that they were using the same, (laughs) the same dictionary as it were, you know? Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the influence of the language of flowers from the Turkish tradition, because that had a big influence on England and then Europe and, and of course, America. Um, Right. Um, the the Turks uh, from the Oriental or Persian language of flowers, as Alice was saying, refer to it as salam, which was really just a system of memorization. Um, Brent Elliott, who was a librarian to the Royal Horticultural Society, writes that the Turkish system was not a language of meanings, but a mnemonic system. The names of the objects rhyme with standard lines of poetry and are an aid by which the lines can be recalled. So it was a very different use of those um, of that language of flowers. So thus, it seems that the salam, that Turkish uh, language, was a source of a few flower associations, but not in the way originally intended. Modern writers cite salam as a source of flower sentiments and symbols, many of which ultimately correspond with the Victorian language of flowers, but that's not how the Turks intended it. Now, one of the individuals credited with introducing the language of flowers to Europe was Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, which is a very long, not very sexy name, but if you ever see images of her, she she looks like an interesting uh, person of the period. She um, had accompanied her husband, the ambassador to Turkey, to his post in 1717, and her Turkish embassy letters were published in 1763, shortly after her death, and they made her famous. They were letters that described Turkish life, including the language of objects, that's Salam. So by the early 1800s, this language of flowers was a commonly understood phrase in Europe. And as we had said earlier, Charlotte de la Tour's La Langue des Fleurs in December 1818 was the beginning of the great proliferation of language of flowers books. One of the most familiar of language of flower books is Rutledge's edition illustrated by Kate Greenaway called The Language of Flowers. And that was published in 1884. And it's one of the few that continues to be reprinted to this day. So you can actually buy a reprint of that book. Um, Greenaway was a respected and well-known writer and she was an illustrator of children's books in England. Now in the United States... The first appearance of the language of flowers in print um, was in the writings of this gentleman by the name of Constantine Samuel Raffinesque. He was a French-American naturalist who wrote this really interesting ongoing feature, and the title was The School of Flora. And he wrote that in the weekly Saturday Evening Post, and also in this monthly magazine called Casket, or Flowers of Literature, Wit, and Sentiment. Isn't that like a crazy kind of... um, title you know um and now with all this like sort of steampunk neo-victorian stuff i have a strong suspicion that it's gonna come it's gonna come back and the language of flowers is gonna make a strong comeback so in these pieces he contained like the botanic and the english and french names of the plant a description of the plant an explanation of its latin names and the flowers emblematic meaning so this is you know if you ever if you're like trolling around flea markets um, yeah, and you see that find. it would be a really good find 
So, you know, during its peak in America, the, this language of flower craze attracted the attention of a lot of popular women writers and editors of the day. It was something that women were allowed to talk about and, and write about and write right. about, you know. So these writers and editors, they really copied each other's lists. And of course, now there's a certain amount of agreement between the French and the English and the American vocabularies. And it all kind of goes back to Latour's language of flowers. So um, when we're going to take um, a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we're going to look at the mythology, the history, and the meaning of some of the most popular Valentine's Day flowers. So stay tuned to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join Linda Palaccio for a taste of the past every Thursday at 12 p.m. as she indulges her curiosities about food, cooking, drinking, and dining of the past by taking a journey through culinary history. Linda interviews authors, scholars, friends, and chroniclers to learn about what was eaten, where, and how, from as long ago as ancient Mesopotamia and Rome, right up to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. The show underscores food as a lively link between present and past cultures. Again, that's Thursday at 12 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Today, in honor of Valentine's Day, we're talking about flowers and their uh, their meanings and their, their language uh, and their history. History. <laughs> Sorry, I have a little bit of a cold today. So, let's talk a little bit about the rose. Ah, the ubiquitous rose. Because it is Thanksgiving. Uh, and Valentine's Day. Va- Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, boy. Take some more Sudafed. Hey, what, what are you on? Sudafed. <laughs> All right. Okay. Give me some of that. <laughs> All right. No, I'm on the wrong holiday. Okay. okay. <laughs> Valentine's Day, the rose. Mythology and folklore um, describes Chloris, the Greek goddess of flowers, crowned the rose queen of all the flowers the legend of the origin of the rose from the roman empire rhodanthe uh rhodanthe was a woman of such exquisite beauty that she had many 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 suitors she showed very little interest in any of them and sought refuge in the temple of diana 
Her suitors were per- persistent, however, and they followed her there, breaking down the gates to get close to her. Diana became incensed at this and turned Rodanth into a beautiful rose and the suitors into thorns. Wow, think about that next time you buy a bouquet or you plant a rose. <clears throat> exactly. From this legend, the rose has become the symbol of love and beauty. Eros presents a rose to Harpocrates, Harpocrates, the god of silence. The term sub rosa, under the rose, comes from the Roman practice of hanging a rose over a conference table to indicate that no gossip past then could be repeated. Today, sub rosa means confidential or in secret. In a Celtic folk legend, a wandering, streaming spirit was silenced by presenting the spirit with a wild rose every new moon. I wonder if I can use that. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. And according to some biblical legends, the original rose growing in the Garden of Eden was actually white, but it turned red as it blushed with shame upon Adam and Eve's fall from grace. To the Arabs, roses signify masculine beauty, and the white rose was often associated with Mohammed. Now, that's an example of how interesting culturally, you know, we think from a Western perspective, a rose, you know, giving a rose on Valentine's Day is one of the most feminine kind of, you know, thing. But to think, you know, in in a totally different culture with the Arabs, it signifies masculine beauty. And it's white, which is traditionally the virgin Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. In Hinduism, Pagoda Sin, one of the wives of Vishnu, was discovered in a rose. Roses were considered the most sacred flowers in ancient Egypt and were used as offerings for the goddess Isis, goddess of motherhood, magic, and fertility. Maybe Egypt needs some roses sprinkled around. Maybe they can call this the War of the Roses, right? (laughs) Some red and white. Sir John Mandeville tells us how when a holy maiden of Bethlehem blamed with wrong and slandered, was doomed to death by fire. She made her prayers to our Lord that he would help her as she was not guilty of that sin, whereupon the fire was suddenly quenched and the burning brands became red rosaries and the brands that were not kindled became white rosaries full of roses. And those were the first rosaries and roses. Henceforth, the rose became the flower of the martyrs. If a maiden had more than one lover, it is believed in one mythology that she should take rose leaves and write the names of her lovers upon them before casting them to the wind. The last leaf to reach the ground would bear the name of the lover with whom she was to marry. Well, I I can see people getting crafty uh, today. (laughs) Yeah. Before Valentine's Day. That sounds like a good crafty project to do. (laughs) I bet Lindsay Lohan would have a few petals to sprinkle around. No doubt. (laughs) So the rose, of course, is the most popular flower and probably the most one of the most expensive to send on Valentine's Day. And, you know, I personally not a big fan of red roses. Um, I don't like to receive them. I like to have something a little different. And um, the second most popular, actually, um, from my experience of working in florists, are carnations. Um, and those are um, very popular because they last a really long time. Yeah, they do. So they have an uh, interesting mythology and flo- folklore, too. Um, Christian legend tells us that when Mary saw Jesus carrying the cross, she began to cry. And where her tears fell, carnations began to grow. 
So perhaps because of this legend, the pink carnation became a symbol of a mother's love. Interestingly, in Korea, carnations were used to tell fortunes. A girl placed a cluster of three blossoms in her hair. If the top one died first, this signified that her last years would be difficult. If the middle one died first, the earlier years would be hard. If the bottom flower died first, the superstition held that her entire life would be miserable. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Now... Uh, what would happen if they all died at the same time? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something going on in that hair, yeah. too. <laughs> I think. Um, That's apocalyptic. Yeah, exactly. Now, carnations, another name for carnations is pinks. And they were called the flowers. Um, they were called a flower of flowers in ancient Greece. And the genus name means divine flower because of its fragrance and beauty. It was called flos joves or jove which is Jupiter or Zeus in Greek, um, flower in Rome. And the earliest mention of carnations was in connection with the Crusaders, who were stricken with the plague near Tunis in the 13th century. We keep coming back to North Africa again yeah. on this show, Alice. <laughs> they drank wine mixed with the leaves of the pinks or carnations to help control the raging fevers and thus took the flower back to France. So during the Renaissance, um, pinks were associated with happiness and carefree days. And because of this, they were used to combat melancholy and cheer the heart, according to an ancient herbal. Now, I always think of when I think of pinks, I think of England. And in England, pinks were thought to be the favorite flower of William the Conqueror, Edward III, Charles II and George V. In fact, um, at Oxford University, carnations are traditionally worn to all examinations, White for the first exam, pink for exams in between, and a red for the last exam. Isn't that interesting? I wonder, if, are they still doing that today? I'm not sure. I bet they probably are. Um, green carnations were famously worn by the Irish writer Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Wilde. Yes. The green carnation thence became a symbol of homosexuality in the early 20th century. So I think now I think of them as a St. Paddy's Day flower because they usually got tinted green so i don't know about those those pub crawling irish boys <laughs> maybe they're celebrating something else <laughs> not just saint patty's day um now in france it's a traditional funeral flower and here in the united states as That's well i think all it, those yeah. puffy hearts that are you know yeah. and crosses are usually made out of carnations and chrysanthemums and they're given in condolence for the for the death of a loved one um, so therefore, in France and in Francophone culture, the carnation symbolizes misfortune and bad luck. Um, and now, this is an interesting story about Mother's Day, another, as we were saying, really important floral holiday. In 1907, Anna Jarvis chose a carnation as the emblem of Mother's Day because it was the favorite flower of her mother. This tradition is now observed in the United States and Canada on the second day in, Mon in May, the second Sunday in May. Anna Jarvis chose the white carnation because she wanted to represent the purity of a mother's love. This meaning has evolved over time, and now a red carnation may be worn if, one mother's is if one's mother is alive, and a white one if she has died. And I didn't know that. Now, most aren't aware that carnation petals are also edible and quite sweet. For 400 years, well into the 18th century, carnations were used to flavor beer, ale, and wine, and in fact are still used to make the French liqueur chartreuse. Oh. I have to share this information with Jimmy, Jimmy on his beer, beer ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tavern keepers would sometimes grow this plant in their own gardens and call it sops in wine. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So the lily is the other 
traditional uh, Valentine's Day flower. Roman mythology associates it with Juno, the queen of the gods and the goddess of marriage. According to the myth, when Juno was nursing her son Hercules, excess milk fell from the sky. Part of it stayed in the heavens, creating the Milky Way, and part of it fell to earth, creating the lilies. So many, you know, so many flowers were created by uh, really clumsy gods. <laughs> you know, stumbling around, having stumbling, too much sex. Spilling blood, spilling mother's milk, yeah. spitting, sneezing. <laughs> it's really pretty funny. Lily was thought to be sacred to the Minoan goddess Brito Martis and was considered the flower of St. Anthony, the protector of marriages, symbol of the Virgin Mary, and also the sacred symbol of Venus, the Roman goddess of love and beauty. Yeah, you'll see so many paintings from the Renaissance with that, yeah. with, uh, with St. Anthony icon. holding the lily. Yeah. According to the Anglo-Saxon folklore, if you offered an expectant mother both a rose and a lily, and she chose the rose, the baby would be a girl. If the lily was chosen, a boy was on the way. That'd be interesting to experiment with that. Yeah, that would be actually great. Uh, we should tell the knot that, that, that wedding, you know, yes. the wedding channel. Yeah. That's a, fun, that's a fun fact. In German folklore, the soul is supposed to take the form of a flower as a lily or a white rose. And European superstition also ha- holds that lilies are protectors against uh, witchcraft and it keeps ghosts from entering the garden. Wow. So, you know, if you've got ghosts entering your garden. Plant some lilies. <laughs> the should... Madonna lily, of course, with the Virgin Mary, dates back to early Christian legend in which her tomb was filled with lilies after her assumption into heaven. Hence, so many lilies also for Mother's Day yes. that are forced. Lilies bloom in the summer. Right. It's unnatural for them to be blooming in May in our area, you know. So florists force them, right. like they do tulips, to, to um, bloom around Easter and Mother's Day as a symbol of purity and, and also for motherhood. Right. Um, in Rome, lilies were known as Rosa Judois or Juno, Hera in, in, in the Greek terminologies, Hera's rose. Um, white lilies have also always been considered a symbol of peace. The Madonna lily was particularly popular in the 16th century as it was a symbol of purity and innocence. And during the Middle Ages, it was frequently painted with saints holding the blossoms. In connection with Christ's birth, uh, in the later period of Italian art, it always showed the angel Gabriel holding a branch of white lilies and a vase of lilies often stood by the Virgin's side. Back to art history days. (laughs) <laughs> yes. The lily's pure white petals signified her spotless body and the golden anthers, which typified her soul sparkling with divine light. That's an amazing image, isn't it? Because yeah. everyone can picture the lily and those golden anthers filled with pollen. You they know. get all over your clothes. <laughs> yeah, that's why some people snip them, actually. Yeah. You'll sometimes see florists yeah. cutting those anthers off so that they don't it, stain it the white flower. Yeah. So um, I thought, Today, now that you've gotten a little bit of an education of what the symbolism of some of the flowers and where all this flower language comes from, I thought that I would put together a bouquet for my husband, a virtual bouquet as a way of sort of describing his most admirable qualities and expressing my feeling, my love and gratitude for him on Valentine's Day. Um, so, so what I'm, would you use? So what I'm going to use consist of? now. I'm gonna, if I make a bouquet for Robin, it's going to consist of a canthus, 
which is a representative of art because he's an artist. I would include boxwood for constancy. I would include broom for humility because he's a very humble guy. I would include camellia japonica in uh, because it means unpretending excellence. I would include a weed called mullion, <laughs> which represents and is a symbol of good nature. I would include an oxide daisy for patience. And I would include pear blossom for our lasting friendship. Aww. So if I could do bouquet, that's what I would do for Robin. So for Paul, I would do, my husband, I would do a dahlia, which is innocence and loyal love and general purity, faith, cheer, and simplicity, which definitely describes my husband. Geraniums for gentility. Very good. That does describe him. And buttercup for riches, because <laughs> he loves to, to have some money in the bank, don't we all? And I think I would finish it out with heliotrope for devotion. Yeah, that's an excellent one to include. Well, I hope that we've inspired you to think about the flowers that you're going to select for Valentine's Day because we all know that most of you are going to be very delayed in purchasing. And you'll be panicked <laughs> and you'll run to the bodega or so, you'll yeah, bother exactly. your florist for some boring, strange. So if you can, you know, if you're out there shopping, think about what the flower meanings are. Um, Alice and I are going to post um, a link to different sources. Um, and we can post this list of what these yeah, so, plants. So we can help you. Um, so thanks for listening. And thanks to our producer and engineer, Jack Inslee, and to our sponsor, Whole Foods. Please check out our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. And let us know how you sent your messages of love or lust or hatred on Valentine's That's Day. Right. Happy Valentine's Happy Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.